friends, I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Electoral Count Act of 1887 is the law that sets out the congressional procedure for certifying electoral college results in a presidential election. Now, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Susan Collins of Maine have introduced a bipartisan bill they say will fix the Electoral Count Act and prevent future events like January 6th. Joining us to discuss the Electoral Count Act, the proposed reforms, and the independent state legislature doctrine that the Supreme Court is about to consider are two co-authors of a piece on the election law blog called Why Congress Should Swiftly Enact the Senate's Bipartisan Electoral College Act Reform Bill. They were part of a bipartisan group of scholars who wrote a piece on January 6th calling for Electoral Count Act reform, and Congress has now answered their call. Rick Pildes is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU Law and the author of several books, including The Law of Democracy, Legal Structure, of the political process. Rick, welcome back to We the People. Thanks very much, Jeff, and I'm very glad to be here with Professor McConnell as well. And Michael McConnell is Richard and Francis Mallory Professor of Law at Stanford and Director of the Constitutional Law Center. His most recent book is The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution. Michael, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Rick, what is the Electoral Count Act and why does it need to be reformed? The Electoral Count Act is the statute that essentially regulates the relationship between the states and Congress in the context of the presidential election. And it specifies uh, what goes on in, in what's called the joint session of Congress, where the electoral votes are received and then counted. And uh, it's a crucial statute for providing a solid, clear, strong legal framework for the presidential election and for dealing with any potential disputes that might arise uh, in the presidential election, at least with respect to you know, how Congress interacts with the states. The statute was created in the aftermath of our most disputed election in American history, the 1876 presidential election. Congress came up with an ad hoc solution to deal with that disputed election, and then Congress decided we need something stronger and more permanent in place to deal with that potential problem. So in 1887, they enacted this Electoral Count Act. Uh, and the reason it needs to be clarified and updated is uh, not just because the statute goes back that far, but it's very antiquated in particular in a number of respects, and it's also very unclearly drafted. And what we need is clear rules that Congress understands, that the people can understand, that states understand in advance of the election. And so reforming the Electoral Count Act, modernizing it, clarifying it, bringing it up to date uh, is particularly urgent in the aftermath of the controversies uh, about that joint session in Congress that occurred in January of 2021. January 6th. Michael, the effort to convince Vice President Pence to refuse to certify the election is well known, but you've both argued that there are other flaws in the Electoral Count Act that might imperil future elections. Tell us what they are and why they need to be reformed. Yes, there are a number of problems, but there's one big problem, and that is the fact that the act allows any time one member of the House of Representatives joined by one uh, senator uh, lodge objections, the joint session of Congress uh, goes into, has to meet and debate uh, the objections to the results from each state. So this is on a state-by-state -state, uh, basis. And the problem is that the act doesn't specify what those objections are going to be. And you know, for many years, we had some sort of understood norms, and this did not blow up into constitutional controversies. But uh, in the last several decades, not just on January 6th, 2021, but four times since 2000, four times in this century, uh, members of Congress have raised objections 
most of them, and maybe even all of them, frivolous, but nonetheless, they have the right under the Electoral Count Act to raise them. And on two of those occasions, count including uh, 2021, there was somebody from both houses to do this, and so the joint session uh, began. And then members of Congress have interpreted the act to mean that they can serve as a kind of nationwide voting board to decide uh, who won in various states, which is not at all what the Constitution contemplates. The Constitution contemplates that the states control the vote counting process, and this meeting of Congress is not intended uh, to be a place where you can just sort of relitigate all the cons- all the electoral uh, issues, and yet that's what it has turned into. In a piece on the election law blog on July 20th, both of you, joined by the scholars Ned Foley, Derek Mueller, and Brad Smith, wrote why Congress should swiftly enact the Senate's bipartisan ECA reform bill. Rick, tell us the main reasons that you think the ECA reform bill should be enacted. Well, there are a number of potential vulnerabilities in the structure that we currently have. And the bipartisan bill that's been released by the Senate Uh, deals with many of those vulnerabilities. Uh, So, for example, uh, current federal law actually allows state legislatures to appoint electors if the election has, quote, failed in a state. Uh, The current provision doesn't give any definition of what a failed election might consist of. And it's easy to imagine uh, in the kind of environment we now uh, exist in, unfortunately, with respect to our elections, uh, it's easy to imagine state legislatures potentially trying to exploit this opening and declaring the election has failed in the state for one reason or another, such as disagreements about the voting process. So one of the major things this bill does is it eliminates that provision, which is a huge move forward. Uh, what it does is it recognizes that there might be an extraordinary Uh, circumstances in which a state cannot hold the vote on election day, for example, a natural disaster uh, that prevents voting. Uh, And so the bill would allow the state to uh, have a vote sometime after election day, but only in these extraordinary and very limited circumstances. It takes the legislature out of the process. It remains the case that the voters will decide who their state will endorse, uh, and in the rare circumstance of, of, of a natural disaster like that, uh, it still maintains that it's the voters uh, who must actually make the choice. Now, that's just one provision. I won't go through all of them, but let's start there. Great. Michael, tell us more about the draft bill's attempt to address the so-called failed election problem. Do you think the solution is adequate? And then tell us about another provision of the bill, eliminating uncertainty about the results of a state election or the risk of competing slates of presidential electors. So what this failed election provision did is it was really an invitation to members of Congress to uh, pump their own definition in and thus to make mischief. I mean, uh, one side might complain that there was voter suppression. The other side might make uh, claims that there was widespread uh, uh, miscounting or fraud in the election, even though uh, those claims had been fully litigated and resolved below. And the philosophy of this bill is uh, to require that elections be conducted according to the law passed by the state legislature in advance of the election. Now, that may seem obvious, and I think it was treated as an obvious norm for a long time. Uh, but it is, uh, in, in our current environment, apparently not obvious. So so the state legislatures set the law in advance, but then that's the role of the legislatures to write the rules. It isn't to count the votes. And under this bill, each state will have a certifying agent. It will be the governor, unless the state law designates someone else, but it will almost certainly be uh, the governor, with a provision for judicial review, so that if the if if the candidates, not just sort of miscellaneous people who want to jump in and litigate, but if the aggrieved candidate brings an action, uh, that the uh, governor's determinations can be challenged, and it 
Uh, the bill provides for expedited judicial review before a three-judge uh, district court with expedited review to the United States Supreme Court uh, so that the, the this process is as much as possible taken out of politics uh, and put into a, a kind of rule of law framework. Rick, tell us more about how the bill eliminates uncertainty about the results of a state election and the risks. Yes. Yeah, so another important feature of this bill is uh, it, it establishes clear rules for what slate should be the officially recognized slate of electors from a state. So back in 1876 and when the current act was enacted, we had a situation of um, states, different state officials sending in uh, different slates of electors. Um, and the original Electoral Count Act, uh, much of it was designed to deal with the situation of two slates of electors coming in from the state. This bill tries to make it clear, it sets up a structure uh, to determine the single state slate that is officially the slate from the state. So in other words, it eliminates the possibility of a two slate scenario. And it then tells Congress you're obligated to con, you know to count that slate, the one that comes through the processes that the Electoral Count Reform Act bill establishes. So it provides um, tremendous clarity and structure there, and it hopefully eliminates the scenario of two different slates of electors coming in from uh, a state. It clarifies or reaffirms that the role of the vice president in the Joint session of Congress is merely a ministerial role that the vice president has no power, as Mike Pence recognized he did not, uh, to delay the process or to make any substantive judgments uh, about the slate from a state that is sent in. And it sets up rules that that Congress self-enforces uh, about what its role is in the counting process and the and the limited role that it has there, which is basically to determine that the slate before it is the slate that came through the processes established in the statute. Michael, Rick mentioned the procedural weaknesses that the bill repairs about how the existing Electoral Count Act structures the joint session of Congress. Uh, tell us more about those and whether you think it adequately addresses those weaknesses. Well, no bill is going to be perfect, and this one isn't. But I do think that this represents uh, an enormous uh, step uh, uh, forward. And to the extent that there are still issues that are, you know, being disputed, uh, many of those I think are going to be difficult to resolve on the bipartisan basis. So I, I think this bill is not only very good, but it may be uh, the best possible. Uh, I mean, there'll be some tweaks, but in, in its basic uh, outline is probably the best possible result that we can get on a bipartisan basis. And I have to say, this is a when oftentimes you hear the word bipartisan tossed around when you know when there are one or two you know people on the other side that that join this. This was a genuinely bipartisan effort. It's been it was being conducted quietly, which is a real sign that it's serious. And and the uh, bipartisan group of senators who are putting it together wisely consulted with, you know, not just our little group that uh, Rick and I are part of, but with uh, several other uh, uh, groups so that they got a very wide range of outside opinion uh, about how to uh, go about it. So, no, it's not necessarily perfect, but I think it goes a, a, a very long way to s solving the, the most important of the structural problems with uh, the current Electoral Count Act. Rick, you and Ned Foley wrote a brief response to Professor Lawrence Tribe and others who said that the bill doesn't go far enough in refining the Electoral Count Act. Tell us about the, those criticisms and, and why you think that the bill deserves to be passed despite not addressing them. Yes. So unfortunately, there are a variety of legal misunderstandings floating around about exactly what this bill does. Uh, and Ned and I have tried to clarify what the bill actually does in response to, to some of these misunderstandings. So one misunderstanding is that the bill uh, would somehow change the structure that currently exists for state and federal court involvement in any disputes 
uh, about the certification process, you know, the, the legal process that finally determines who has won the vote in the state. The bill doesn't supplant anything about current uh, litigation that might take place in state or federal courts. Uh, that's That's been a misunderstanding. Uh, a second misunderstanding is that the bill leaves open the possibility that state legislatures after the election could decide they don't like the outcome in the popular vote and just decide to appoint electors on their own. Uh, they do not have the power to do that. That's because Congress has the power to set the time of the election and Congress specifies that the election must take place on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November and electors must be appointed that day. Now, of course, people vote and they have appointed the electors that day, although it may take some time to determine exactly who won that vote. But the importance of that provision is that state legislatures cannot appoint electors based on their own preferences after election day. And it doesn't matter if they pass a statute in advance of the election trying to give themselves that power, saying, for example, we reserve the right after election day to appoint the electors ourselves. They do not have the constitutional power to do that. So that's a, another misunderstanding. As Michael said, it's important that there be bipartisan support for this bill, not just for the standard reason that you have to overcome the filibuster in the Senate and get to 60 votes, but this act is self-enforcing in Congress. That is, this is not a statute in which the courts are likely to come into the picture and determine whether Congress has followed the rules in the statute. So it only works if you have significant buy-in from both parties in Congress that, yes, these are the rules we will be governed by. And, and that's why it's really essential here that there be strong bipartisan support for this bill, as there you know, apparently seems to be, at least so far in the initial uh, stages of the rollout uh, of, of the bill. Now, I know the House, by the way, has been working on a, a version of the bill as well, uh, and they've been working uh, for a long time and, and you know, very um, intensively. Uh, I assume they will release a version sometime soon. And then we'll have to see, you know, how that uh, compares with the Senate bipartisan bill. Um, as Michael said, you know, there are various tweaks uh, I might endorse to the bill. But the question is whether you can maintain substantial bipartisan support for any of those tweaks. Uh, for example, some people would prefer the threshold for objections to be not 20 percent of the House and the Senate, but a third of the House and the Senate. Um, and in principle, I have no objection to that. Uh, if there's bipartisan support to agree that that's, that's how high the threshold should be raised. But none of the minor concerns that have been expressed so far uh, have changed the view from the piece that Michael and I and others signed when the bill came out, which is this is a vast improvement of the status quo. Um, it would provide much greater clarity and stability to the presidential election process. It might be improved in certain ways if, if there's possibility for that. But even if it's not, my view is that Congress should endorse this bill because it is a vast improvement over what we currently have. Michael, why is there such notable bipartisan support for this bill? Is it fair to say that both Republicans and Democrats are concerned to make it clear that state legislatures can't change the result of a presidential election after it takes place. And tell us about your response to the claim that Congress lacks the power to enact such a bill and your view that there were sufficient worries about the prospects of a disputed presidential election in 1800 that Congress back then seriously considered legislation in advance that would provide a subtle mechanism for resolving such disputes. So why is this the occasion for... Uh, bipartisanship, I think it really is because January 6th was such a shocking event. And the, uh, the, the match that set it off was the giant session and therefore the, the, and the attempted exploitation of some of the ambiguities in the Electoral Count Act. And it, seem, and, and it seems to people of both parties necessary to make sure that not only that, that doesn't happen again, but uh, that other, once you begin looking carefully at this, there were other possible uh, uh, problems too. And, and we should eliminate those in advance because we can't deal with it uh, on the, 
you know, when it's when it's actually upon us. Now, does Congress have the power to do this? The Constitution lays out very bare bones description of how electors are going to be chosen, and there are, uh, and and you need to know a little bit more than that. And uh, the necessary and proper clause of Article One, Section Eight, gives Congress the power. Uh, to pass laws necessary and proper for the execution, not just of its own powers, but of the powers uh, of the United States as a whole. And I think that that is is a very solid uh, constitutional basis for some kind of a statute that outlines how uh, the electoral provisions of the Constitution will be carried out. Turning to constitutional constraints on powers to regulate elections, Rick, you testified recently about the independent state legislature doctrine, and you identified seven potential versions of the doctrine, um, which you listed and addressed their practical consequences and the historical evidence for or against them. We've, We've had a couple of great discussions about the doctrine on We the People. Tell us about the seven versions that you talked about in your testimony and what you think the consequences are. Yes, so your audience probably knows that there are two places in the Constitution that are the focal points when we talk about this independent state legislature theory. Um, Article 1, Section 4 gives state legislatures the power to regulate the time, place, and manner of elections to the House and the Senate, though Congress can also take over that function. Uh, And then uh, with respect to the presidential election, the electors clause, as we call it, uh, gives state legislatures the power to determine the manner of the presidential election. Uh, And the issue here is whether the use of the word legislature in those provisions uh, gives the state legislature a a kind of special federal constitutional immunity from all the things that would normally constrain state legislatures. For example, the state constitutions, uh, the state courts in various ways. The debate about this, the Supreme Court will be hearing a case on it next year, which is why this debate has really uh, taken off. Typically, it's framed in terms of, you know, is there or is there not an independent state legislature doctrine? And that's obviously a very important question. But in addition, if the court were to decide there is such a doctrine, it matters quite a bit what the scope of that doctrine might be. And the, the ramifications of the doctrine depend very significantly on what particular version uh, the court might recognize. So the most sweeping set of ramifications would follow from the sort of maximalist view of the independent state legislature theory, which is that state legislatures, when they regulate national elections, uh, cannot be bound by the substantive provisions in state constitutions. So if the state constitution, for example, Uh, for primary elections says that we're going to use uh, a structure that voters in Alaska have recently adopted, a top four primary uh, in which the top four candidates, everyone runs in one primary and the top four candidates go on to the general election. Under this view of the doctrine, if a state legislature passed a statute saying, no, the primary is going to be structured this way, the state legislature would prevail even over a state constitutional provision. Or if a state constitutional provision bans partisan gerrymandering, as a number of state constitutions now do, often the result of voter-initiated initiated amendments to the state constitution. Uh, if a state, sta- a state constitution bans partisan gerrymandering, under the most extreme version of an independent state legislature theory, um, that would not bind the state legislature and they could continue to engage in partisan gerrymandering. So this is all just on the very first potential version of the doctrine. But that gives you a little bit of a sense of of how sweeping the ramifications might be if the Supreme Court concludes that state legislatures are free of their own constitutions when they regulate national elections. I don't know how much we want to go through all all seven versions that I've identified that are floating around out there as possibilities, but but some have less dramatic ramifications, of course. Uh, So I'll just mention one of those, and then I'll I'll stop. One version is that uh, state courts can continue to apply state constitutional provisions, and if they invalidate some piece of state legislation regulating national elections, 
they first have to give the state legislature a chance to come up with the remedy instead of the courts themselves directly and immediately imposing the remedy. And the idea here would be on this version of the doctrine, uh, the Constitution contemplates state legislatures as the uh, sort of fundamental regulator of national elections, at least if Congress hasn't taken over. And so state courts can you know, apply the state constitution, but they have to respect the legislature's role by giving the legislature a first crack at a remedy instead of themselves directly imposing that immediately. Thank you very much for laying all that out. Michael, in your view, should the Supreme Court recognize an independent state legislature doctrine and how broadly should it sweep? Well, the reason why there appears to be an independent state legislature doctrine is in the text of the Constitution. And, of course, the Supreme Court needs to pay attention to that. The text, and Rick mentioned the two provisions, these do not say that states uh, have the power to do these things. These provisions specifically say the state legislatures uh, have the power uh, to do these things. And and in another provision, the one having to do with constitutional amendments, it's pretty clear that the framers of the Constitution uh, distinguish between the institutions for these things. So there also, there's specific reference to legislatures. Uh, they're in, contra- in, in comparison to conventions, which were a more democratic process than the legislatures themselves. So it, it seems pretty clear from the text and from the context of uh, that the framers of the Constitution did really mean the legislatures and that this is one view. I mean, Rick describes one extreme view, which is that the uh, legislatures are not constrained by ordinary state constitutional law or other principles. That's one extreme. Another extreme is that states are free really to do this uh, however they, they exercise these powers however they wish, and that there's nothing, there's no state, independent state legislature doctrine at all, so states just can can do what they want. My guess is that the court will find that neither of those two extremes is going to work, and I, you know, I don't know all of Rick's seven <laughs> uh, positions, but I suspect some of them are, are certainly intermediate. What, you know, he refers to one, which is to say that, yes, state courts and federal courts can continue to find that the legislatures have acted unconstitutionally, but they can't perform these functions themselves. What happens today in some places is that the legislature will uh, do a a map, the state uh, court will say, oh, that's that's gerrymandering, that's, that's not good, and then the state court will itself write a map, which usually means letting the party that they like putting the party that they likes map into into effect, um, that seems wrong. It does seem that the court can say that what the legislature did was unconstitutional, but it, still the legislature has to draw uh, the map. Uh, I think that there's also, a, there may be a distinction between general principles of constitutionality, setting up the legislature, how they operate, and due process and 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 so forth uh, versus particular provisions of a state constitution that might take over the job might for themselves specify uh, the way in which elections would be conducted and you know it seems to me that's there's a very strong argument that that's unconstitutional but let me emphasize here there's an override for Legislate the conduct of senatorial and congressional elections. If Congress wanted, for example, to pat to authorize states to use a nonpartisan uh, redistricting commission, I see no reason why they couldn't do that, and and then the states would be able to, notwithstanding the independent state legislature doctrine. Now, there is no congressional override with respect to the choice of presidential electors, so there's going to be some tension between those two provisions. Rick, what is your response to Michael's identification of an intermediate version of the state legislature doctrine, which says that state courts can find that a legislature acted unconstitutionally in drawing a map but can't perform the function of writing a map themselves, and... Uh, how does this apply in the context of the 
North Carolina case that the Supreme Court's about to hear. You know, if we look to historical practice to try to resolve the meaning of the term legislature in the Constitution, I would say the overwhelming weight of historical practice is against the view that there is an independent state legislature doctrine in any form. There are some tidbits of evidence that support the idea of an independent state legislature theory. Justice Story mentioned this in 18, I think it was 1828 in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention and debates on certain issues. Um, There are a couple of state court cases in the Civil War. People disagree about how to read those cases, but some read them to support the doctrine. Um, There's the resolution of a disputed congressional election after the Civil War where Congress invoked the doctrine. But, But the larger historical kind of trajectory here, as I've looked at the evidence, is against the idea that there is such a doctrine. So, for example, um, state constitutions have, from the very beginning, adopted substantive constraints on what state legislatures can do in regulating national elections. There was never a case before the Bush, Bush v. Gore concurrence, a three justice concurrence in 2000, in which anyone had even suggested, as far as I know, there's, there's no historical evidence for this view, but this is one of the versions of such a potential doctrine that federal courts can uh, kind of oversee state court interpretation of state election statutes. And if the federal courts decide that interpretation strays too far from the text of the statute, then the state court has acted unconstitutionally. That idea just only entered the picture in 2000 in the concurrence that Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote for three justices in Bush v. Gore. But that's another version of the doctrine. I'm not sure what Michael's view is about that particular version. That is definitely a prevalent one. Um, But I don't find any historical support for that one. So I do agree with Michael that that I suspect um, a majority of the, the court at least will go into this case some you know sort of inclined toward thinking there there is such a doctrine that that word legislature carries some kind of distinctive weight there are certainly several justices on the court now who have indicated support for that view um i'm not sure that the court has been exposed to the full range of ramifications from adopting any one of these different versions that are out there of the doctrine and i'm not sure the court or a number of these justices who have written short statements about the doctrine, um, have really worked through uh, which of these different versions they are inclined to support. One version of the doctrine, which might be implicated in the North Carolina case, is that Justices Alito and Thomas, at least, have suggested that state courts might not be able to apply general constitutional provisions, broad provisions, uh, to strike down state legislation regulating national elections. In North Carolina, it's it's the districting for Congress. So that might leave open the possibility that state courts could enforce more specific state constitutional provisions. So again, if a state constitutional provision expressly bans partisan gerrymandering so that there's not an enormous amount of discretion in the state courts, maybe the suggestion in those statements from those justices is that it's fine to continue to apply those provisions. But in North Carolina, the state Supreme Court relied on sort of broad clauses in the state constitution uh, about free and fair elections, for example, or the, the right to vote. And at least those justices you know, seem inclined to the view that state courts can't enforce what Justice Thomas called vague constitutional provisions against state legislatures. As I say, it's hard to know which version of the doctrine we're going to be talking about. In North Carolina, the court could decide the case on narrow grounds that uh, we've already discussed, which is perhaps the state court didn't give the state legislature enough opportunity to come up with a new map, uh, even if the court legitimately held the map unconstitutional. But it's hard to discuss this doctrine because, or this theory, because it is just a theory at this point. The court's never The Supreme Court's never endorsed the doctrine. I don't think there's any federal court decision before 2020 uh, that endorses the doctrine. The Eighth Circuit did endorse the doctrine in the 2020 election. But until that point, there had been no 
Supreme Court opinion or federal court opinion, as far as I know, endorsing the doctrine in any of its versions. So it's hard to, it's a lot of speculation right now as to what version of the doctrine we're going to be arguing about if the court endorses some version of it. Michael, what is your response to the strong claim Rick makes that there's no support in original understanding for an independent state legislature doctrine? In your article, Two and a Half Cheers for Bush v. Gore, you quoted the election clause and noted that there's no relevant legislative history explaining why the framers of the Constitution uh, made a departure putting federal courts in the unusual posture of determining for themselves whether state courts' interpretation of state laws were authentic reading of the legislative will. What's your reading of the original understanding, and what's the implication for the North Carolina case? We have a real paucity of historical evidence uh, dating from uh, the framing But my main response to Rick is that until very recent times, and I'm thinking 1960s at the earliest, uh, the dominant doctrine from the Supreme Court was that the courts have no role in policing elections, period. So uh, Lyndon Johnson just out and out stole a senatorial election in Texas And the issue went up to uh, Justice Hugo Black uh, on an emergency motion, and Black said, no, we don't don't have anything to do with this. There's nothing we can do. Um, Sometime in the 60s and 70s, and then culminating in Bush versus Gore, uh, I think in a way that Bush versus Gore is accepted across the the spectrum today, uh, there has been such involvement. and, And it is only when that begins to take place that this problem of the independent state legislature doctrine ever arises. So when Rick says there's no historical support for it, there wouldn't be because this is a product of the modern development of more uh, judicial uh, interference. Now, the idea that federal courts say, look at state court decisions and say, well, this one is you know, pretty close to the law and therefore it's just an interpretation, but this one is so far away from the state law that it's making it up. That's very dicey. It's it's something that makes me very uncomfortable. At the same time, there may be no alternative uh, to that. And there are some other areas in the law where uh, where we do something like that. For example, in property rights, when state courts make relatively minor adjustments to the property rules. Nobody says that that's a taking of property without just compensation. But when there's a a convulsive, like totally new change resulting in people losing property rights that they seem to have for hundreds of years, then we do have a takings problem. It's really a similar situation. That's not, that doesn't mean it's not difficult. It doesn't mean, I mean, it means the line drawing is going to be really ferocious but I'm afraid there may be no alternative to it. Rick, Michael makes the strong claim that until the 60s, the dominant idea was that courts had no role in policing elections. But once courts began to police elections in a way that he says is accepted by uh, both liberals and conservatives, then it's necessary for them to read the text and create an independent state legislature doctrine. Do, do you find that a persuasive argument, uh, especially for justices who claim to be bound by original understanding? And what do you think its implications are? I think we have to distinguish between the role of federal courts and the role of state courts. So Michael is correct that until the 1960s, the federal courts uh, generally did not believe the federal constitution had a significant role to play in overseeing the election process. I mean, there's some exceptions to that, but but fundamentally, before the 1960s, uh, the the federal court doctrine uh, was that federal courts did not have a major role to play. But state courts have always been in in the business of dealing with disputed elections. You have uh, election contest procedures. Uh, you have various other procedures uh, for dealing with disputes over elections that took place in the state courts, not in the federal courts. Um, And just to be clear for for the audience, um, everyone agrees that state legislatures are bound by the federal constitution and by federal statutes that apply to the election process. Uh, So so the question is whether what state courts had been doing uh, throughout American history with respect to 
interpreting state election statutes, applying state election statutes, uh, whether there is now the kind of constraint that Michael is talking about um, that would put federal courts in the role of deciding, you know, if the, the and this version of the doctrine, deciding whether the state court interpretation of a statute or state executive application of a state election statute, you know, went too far from the text of the statute with all the uncertainty, as Michael acknowledges, that that entails. Uh, and one thing to understand here is that, you know, this version of the doctrine uh, would threaten to turn uh, almost any dispute over the application or interpretation of state election law for federal elections into a federal court matter, because the losing campaign uh, is always going to be pulling out every stop they can. Uh, and if the federal courts are open to relitigating whether the state court interpretation of a statute uh, you know, went too far, it's easy to imagine that um, losing campaigns will be running to federal court to do this. And at the extreme, the risk is that this version of the doctrine would convert every dispute over state election law into, with, with respect to federal elections, into a federal constitutional claim, at least. With respect to one of the concerns that Michael um, identified, there is already federal constitutional doctrine, due process doctrine, that does constrain state court interpretation of election law for all elections, state and federal, in one particular respect, which is after votes have been cast, state courts cannot, uh, in the guise of interpreting election law, essentially rewrite the election law, because this pulls the rug out from under voters who have already voted based on the state of the law at the time they voted. And so that does implicate concerns of fundamental fairness, the lower federal courts have recognized. And so the evulsive change that Michael was talking about, you know, after people have voted under one set of rules, uh, that could arise from state court interpretations that effectively change the law that people had voted under, that does violate due process. Uh, and there are protections against that that the lower federal courts have already recognized. But that's a very kind of discrete domain. It's after votes have been cast, uh, are the rules effectively being changed in a way that violates fundamental fairness because you're throwing out votes or maybe including votes that under existing law were valid or were invalid. This version of the independent state legislature doctrine, as I say, is, you know, is far more sweeping because it, it could apply to any interpretation or application of election law in the states, you know, whenever the change take place, take change takes place. So even if it's six months in advance of the election and everybody knows what the state court has said about the deadlines for certain voting matters, a disappointed campaign could go into federal court and say that state court interpretation, you know, is illegitimate under the federal constitution. And that's the concern I have about opening this door um, and basically, you know, creating an avenue for relitigating every dispute over state election law in the context of federal elections in the federal courts. Thank you so much for that. Michael, Rick makes a really interesting point when he says that state courts have always been in the business of dealing with disputed elections. And to construe the elections clause in a way that the framers didn't anticipate to ask in every case whether state courts went too far in their election decisions would threaten to turn any interpretation of election law by state courts into a federal constitutional question, which is inconsistent, he says, with history and tradition. What's your response uh, as an originalist and more broadly? Well, it's certainly true that this will invite litigation from disappointed campaigns and there'll be lots more cases uh, going into federal court. This is true every time, you know, federal constitutional law is extended to a new area. It's true of equal protection and due process and so forth. The question is, is this consistent with uh, what the Constitution commands? And if the language of the Constitution, the specification of the state legislature as the body to create state law in this area is to be given any weight, then I, I think this court is going to have no choice but to get 
uh, into the area. I, I do think that the two extreme positions are un, un, unreasonable, and, will, and I predict that they will be uh, rejected. But how some of the intermediate positions are going to be handled is going to be, uh, I think, quite uh, tough. And uh, Rick says once the cap votes are cast, well, due process already gives you the right gives people the right to go into federal court and say that state courts have uh, misinterpreted the state law. And that's, of course, true. Uh, well, what about when they intervene ahead of time? A, a concrete example that I think is useful to think about f- from the 2020 election uh, was the Pennsylvania legislature uh, debated and passed a new law uh, vastly liberalizing the use of mail-in ballots because of the COVID problem. It debated the question of whether those ballots had to be received on election day or not, and they decided, yes, it did. And there's no argument that that's an unconstitutional decision on the part of the, of the, of the uh, state legislature. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court, referring to highly generalized language about fairness and so forth, decided, oh, no, uh, let the ballots will continue to count the ballots for three more days after the legislature uh, specified. Now, I think that's a, just a, a classic example. This is one we can all sort of chew on because if the legislature has the right to write the rules, uh, things like a, a deadline for receipt of ballots should be something the legislature does. The, the state Supreme Court should not be able to rewrite that. Now, that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court in advance of the election, and the agreement was that any votes that came in uh, after Election Day uh, would be uh, sequestered, and it turned out there weren't enough of those to affect the uh, result in Pennsylvania, and so the Supreme Court dismissed the case. But had there been more of those, and had it, a, a been, had it been a situation where it could affect the result of the election, the Supreme Court would have decided the independent state legislature doctrine in connection with the 2020 election. Rick, Michael says that the Pennsylvania case he just mentioned is one that everyone should be able to agree on, namely that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court should not be able to, by invoking generalized language about fairness, change the rules after the election. Do you agree or disagree with him on that point? And then and, and what's your response more broadly to his claim that federal courts, without the benefit of original understanding, are bound to follow the text wherever it may lead, even if that leads to results that the framers couldn't have anticipated? So there are two different versions of the way the situation in Pennsylvania could arise. And this implicates two different versions, potentially, of of the doctrine, and they have very different implications. So if the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had relied on sort of background principles of statutory interpretation to say, in the context of COVID, this deadline, you know, doesn't give people an adequate opportunity to vote, since many people will cast absentee, ballots at the time, there was great worry about the Postal Service and how quickly it would actually be able to handle ballots. If the Pennsylvania Supreme Court um, had rewritten a specific term like a deadline in a state election statute for federal elections based on sort of general principles of statutory interpretation in Pennsylvania, um, then one version of the doctrine would be they can't do that. But what happened in Pennsylvania is the state Supreme Court relied on the state constitution to conclude that in the context of COVID, that deadline uh, violated state constitutional protections for the right to vote. Uh, and so if the court were to embrace that version of the doctrine, you know, what exactly would it mean? Would it mean that state constitutions as a general matter you know, cannot constrain state legislatures? Would it mean that in a less extreme version, state courts cannot rely on general state constitutional provisions uh, to strike down state election laws? Um, And if that's what it means, then we're going to open up this whole set of questions about, you know, how specific does a state constitutional provision have to be to be specific enough? What if the state courts have actually interpreted that provision over many years and given it more specific content? 
Uh, so that as a general matter, just from the text, it looks like a broad provision, but actually there's you know, established doctrine that the courts are then applying. Is that specific enough? Uh, and I, I don't know how Michael um, answers those questions, but I think either version, once the state constitution is involved, as it was in the Pennsylvania case, you know, either version creates uh, or opens up a, a you know very very big implications, and they could be quite destabilizing because it could mean that a lot of provisions that have been in place for years are now suddenly unconstitutional unless the state legislature chooses to uh, to adopt them. Um, so. One way I would answer the question about the meaning of the word legislature is that when Congress uh, or when the convention, you know, wrote those terms, uh, the background assumptions or understandings, I believe, you know, and as Michael says, we don't really have evidence one way or the other on this question, but the background understandings that I believe they would have been acting against uh, were that uh, it's the it's the legislature is you know created by the state constitution is defined by the state constitution as its powers are defined by the state constitution that that's what the legislature is it's not this body that exists independently of all of that and that the normal processes of interpretation and application of state law would also be assumed as as part of this process so the provisions give the state legislature the, you know, sort of fundamental authority to, you know, set the rules, but surrounded by all the things that apply to state law in general, which is, in my view, what the convention is best understood uh, to have understood in enacting that provision. And that's why, you know, in terms of the, let me put the point this way too, in terms of original public meanings, uh, original public understandings, uh, before the Civil War, I believe there's just a single instance in which scholars have identified uh, an assertion of this theory, which is Justice Story's comments in that 1828 Massachusetts convention. But as I mentioned earlier, there were at least five state constitutions at the time that imposed rules on state legislatures for regulating federal elections. For example, one of the contentious issues early on is, should there be voice voting where you, you, know, you vote publicly or should you be able to vote by ballot? And that issue was resolved at the level of state constitutions. And no one argued that this was an intrusion on the unique constitutional autonomy that state legislatures have when they regulate federal uh, elections. Michael, what's your response to Rick's claim that the textualist analysis here is unbounded by history and raises all sorts of questions like, can states not rely on general provisions to enforce election laws? How specific does the state court have to be? There, there's, there's little in, in text, history, or original public meaning that answers those questions, he says, and that it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that legislatures define state constitutions not as independent bodies, but as ones that operated uh, within the normal application of state law. Just to put the point clearly for listeners, um, why isn't it right that a textualist should defer to text, history, and tradition in this regard, rather than adopting an open-ended doctrine that could really destabilize an awful lot of our law? I don't disagree with Rick that uh, the most sensible interpretation of this doctrine is that legislatures oper operate within uh, the general framework of uh, of the law. I, I again, th there is an extreme version which I which I don't find persuasive that would say that, but I think that that's correct. But that doesn't mean that state courts can just step in and write their own election law. The incidences that Rick refers to were, were so well accepted as a matter of law that nobody objected uh, to them. I put Rick's examples in the category of absence of evidence rather than, you know, rather than actual evidence. If somebody had said, oh, no, the state legislature can't provide for the secret ballot uh, because that violates the independent state legislature doctrine, and they had argued about it and and come to the conclusion uh, that the Constitution could do that. That would be something of, of real note, but 
unless there's a, a reason for a controversy to arise, I don't think we can look to that uh, as uh, evidence uh, that there was uh, no such doctrine. I, the other way to look at it is that the states, by and large, have obeyed the independent state legislature doctrine all along, and it's really only in uh, modern times when there is so much more state, uh, so much more court involvement, uh, that the uh, issue has become uh, so important. Thanks so much for that and for this rich and illuminating debate over the scope of the independent state legislature doctrine. Rick, let's conclude this great discussion by flagging for We the People listeners what future threats to elections you think they should be paying attention to. So one major threat we now face is what's been happening with election administrators. Many of these people, the poll workers, you know, for example, are voluntary people doing uh, what they think of as a civic duty. They were very low profile. And now, given the attacks on the election system, the claims of fraud, the claims of manipulation, one of the real tragedies here is that these people have come under uh, assault in various ways, uh, threats, serious threats, threats to themselves, threats to their family, um, harassment, efforts to intimidate. And there are a number of things that follow from that. One is that we're seeing lots of these people resign. You know, it's not worth putting up with these kinds of um, threats and harassments and intimidations. Um, that could create problems in terms of actually just being able to staff the polls fully. It's become so much more contentious a position. Secondly, offices that were elected and are more low profile, like Secretary of State offices, uh, have suddenly been thrust into the limelight because their role in administering elections has become more, more apparent. And that's led to uh, more partisan types of people deciding to run for these offices. And there's concern about whether more partisanly kind of activist figures, uh, if they win state elections for these roles, you know, to what extent can we trust them to administer the elections in a fair, impartial, rule of law-like way? There are also going to be worries about whether there are intimidation efforts at the polling places in upcoming elections. There's greater reasons to be concerned about that. So there's not a lot of scope for bipartisan agreement at the national level on voting policy. We've seen that in the legislative um, battles over the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Advancement Act. But along with the bipartisan um, support for Electoral Count Act reform, um, I would hope that Congress can find a way to bipartisan legislation at the national level that would provide more protection for election workers, um, more protection against intimidation, threats, uh, and the like, and also more protection for the, for the integrity of the polling place. There are federal laws that regulate some of this, but I think those we, we could toughen up harden up the structure with national legislation to protect the election administration process from these kinds of um, manipulations and, and forces. Many thanks for that. Michael, last word in this great discussion is to you. Do you think there might be bipartisan support for legislation regarding protecting election workers against intimidation, threats, and the integrity of the polling place? And what threats to elections do you think we, the people, listeners, should be thinking about? I believe there is legislation which is part of this bipartisan agreement uh, along with the uh, reforms to the Electoral Count Act uh, that would uh, help to address this. I, I can't give you the exact details, but providing for uh, enhanced uh, criminal penalties for uh, interference with election uh, workers and that sort of thing, I would think that this would be an area of bipartisan Agreement. If we were to really be wanting to talk ambitiously and to things that you know might not be so easy to get across, it really would be a good thing to think about how state election administration could be uh, restructured in a different way. When there's a partisan election for Secretary of State that runs this, that may have been fine as long as you know you had you know basically. You know, public-spirited uh, folks 
doing that who are just going to obey the, the law. But with both parties now pouring money into those elections, um, it's, it's a real vulnerability in our system. Thank you so much, Rick Pildes and Michael McConnell, for offering We the People listeners a model of thoughtful civil uh, debate about the Electoral Count Act, the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, and other threats to election integrity. It's always an honor to have you both on. Michael, Rick, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for inviting us. Today's show was produced by Melody Rowell and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Sam Desai, Vishan Chowdhury, Elliot Peck, Colin Thibault, and Samuel Turner. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is eager for a weekly dose of constitutional light and learning. And always remember, dear friends, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, the hunger for civil dialogue of folks like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount, $5, $10 or more to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. Hope everyone is having a wonderful summer. And on behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosenberg.